All right. Well, as the kids uh, continue to head out, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 3. If you have access to God's Word on your phone, feel free to pull that out as, as well. We want to continue to look at the book of Daniel. We're, we're asking these questions about what does it look like to worship the Lord and to be faithful to Him in the 21st century. Why would we use a story from the 6th century B.C.? It's because Daniel and his friends were living in a world, in a culture that was opposed to the Lord and opposed to following Him. And in many ways, we can say we live in that same type of culture. And so we learn from Daniel, we learn from these stories about what it looks like to worship, what it looks like to remain faithful, and to continue to pursue that. We're not going to read the entire chapter 3 together at the beginning because we're going to work through it uh, a little bit at a time. But if you would, stand with me right now, and we're going to read verses 1 down through 12 to get started. So if you would, stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all those instruments we read earlier, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, in verse 8, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of these instruments and the music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I don't know if you've had this experience as a parent or a grandparent, but you make a promise to your child or you make a promise to your grandchild and then you just forget about it. But the problem is they don't forget about it. I've had many times where I've apparently promised something to Bennett, and then months later, he'll come back and he'll say, hey, you remember when you said we were going to do X? Well, there was a good chance at the moment I made that promise, I was probably just trying to get him to leave me alone or or go away from me. Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Not even thinking about it. And then he comes back and calls me on it and says, hey, remember, we're going to go do this. 
You make a promise, you forget about it, and then you're forced to deal with it. Look at the end of chapter 2 in Daniel chapter 2. So let me say that again. Look at the end of Daniel chapter 2. Back up around verse 46. What happened in Daniel 2 is that he gave an interpretation of a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar that he couldn't get any other way. And in verse 46, if you have to scroll up in your phone just a little bit or turn back in your Bible, it says that the king fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel and ultimately his friends in these high positions, except that right at the beginning of chapter 3, now King Nebuchadnezzar wants to build this 90-foot-tall statue and have the people bow down before that. And the question is, what happened between the end of chapter 2 that he would have had that interpretation and the beginning of chapter 3 that now he wants to build a statue and everyone bow down to this false god? There's a possibility that King Nebuchadnezzar just forgot what happened at the end of chapter 2. Probably not, but that, that's a possibility. Another possibility is that he did not really understand the implications of the dream. In this dream, the purpose of the dream was to show him that his kingdom would not last forever. That he was a great king, he was a mighty king, but his kingdom was going to come to an end. But you find out in verse 48 that the king places Daniel, but this is back in chapter 2, verse 48. The king placed Daniel in a high position, he made him ruler over the province. At Daniel's request, he put his friends up in these administrative positions. What you find at the end of chapter 2 is King Nebuchadnezzar seems more impressed with Daniel and his friends than he does with God. And so it seems like he doesn't really grasp the significance of the dream. He's just more amazed that Daniel and his friends were able to reveal this mystery to him, and so he's geared in on that. Another possibility, and this is probably the most likely one about why he would build a statue after having that dream, the more likely possibility is that King Nebuchadnezzar just simply did not think that this dream would come true. He refused to face the reality that God was speaking to him. What it makes us think about is in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have received the word of the Lord about how they're supposed to live, and they're not supposed to eat from a particular tree. And then in Daniel chapter 3, they come around and they say, did God really say we're not supposed to eat from that tree? In other words, God didn't really mean that. He's not really going to follow through on what he said. And it seems like King Nebuchadnezzar has one of those experiences. He has an experience where he said, you know what, I probably just had bad Taco Bell. That dream was not legitimate. It's not really going to happen like that. And so God didn't really say that. He didn't really speak that to me. One of the reminders that we get at the beginning of chapter 3 is not everyone who has an intense religious experience will continue to worship the Lord. And you can probably look at that in your own life. You can see friends. You can see family members. Sometimes people come face to face with what is a very intense religious experience. 
and yet they talked themselves out of the fact that that was really the God of the universe at work in their life. Or God didn't really intend for me to worship him, or he didn't really intend for me to get serious about my faith. And, and so it's possible, it's very possible that you could have had a religious experience at some time in your life, and yet the result of that was not that you became a worshiper of God, it's just that you continued on with your life as normal. And so there's a caution here at the beginning of Daniel chapter 3 about those types of religious experiences. Notice this tower that Nebuchadnezzar makes. It says in verse 1 that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, if you have watched those VeggieTales kids' videos, what is the tower made out of in those VeggieTales videos? Chocolate. So if you're forced to pick between a tower of chocolate and a tower of gold, we're going with chocolate every time, okay? But, uh, but this tower that Nebuchadnezzar made was plated in gold. Now, why is that a big deal? Because in the dream that he had in chapter 2, the dream he had of a statue in chapter 2 is that the head of it was gold to represent Nebuchadnezzar. Then the next part was silver, the next part was bronze, the next part was made of a different type of metal. It was all made of different types of metals. But Nebuchadnezzar comes back around in chapter 3 and he says, I don't want to share my kingdom with anybody else. I don't think anybody is coming after me. So he covers the entire thing in gold as a way of saying no one stands after me. I am the greatest king and my kingdom will never end. And so he's, he's rebelling against that dream from chapter 2 by making the entire sto- statue made out of gold. It says that it was 90 feet high, uh, nine feet wide, and it was set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Dura, there's some controversy about where it's located, but if you find Baghdad on a modern-day map, and you go just southwest of Baghdad a little bit on a modern-day map, most likely that is where Dura was located and where this particular statue was set up. But this statue is meant to be a mark of allegiance, a mark of loyalty. It's meant to show how great Nebuchadnezzar is. Look what happens in verse 4. So the herald in verse 4 comes out and says, When you hear this music... And he references peoples, nations, men of every language. When you hear this music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Let me give you a quick reference if you'd like to write it down. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 22 shows that this was not a false threat. Jeremiah 29, verse 22, says that King Nebuchadnezzar really did throw people into the fire. So he's not bluffing here in this particular story. This is something that he was known to have done. When you hear about a furnace of fire, think about the shape of what you would see at a modern-day nuclear plant, kind of that cone-type shape that comes in a little bit. That's the, that's the shape of these ancient furnaces, and they were mu- used primarily to make bricks. So what has happened is most likely this furnace was used to make the bricks that became the foundation for the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. But he didn't just use it to make bricks. He also used it as a threat for whoever didn't fall down and worship this particular statue that he had built. And then you find out in verse 8 that these astrologers come forward. And it says that they denounced 
the Jews there. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, they're telling Nebuchadnezzar that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of the Jews, had not bowed down and worshipped the statue. We need to make a connection at this point with another book in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Esther. If you're not familiar with your Bible, or maybe you say, you know what, I would like to read my Bible some more, but I'm just not in the habit of it, let me suggest that you do something. This week, go back and read the book of Esther as a way maybe to get started in reading the, the scriptures again. But the story of Esther is about a man named Haman who wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And Esther and her uncle Mordecai became key figures that God used in order to rescue the Jews, in order to rescue them from this punishment that Haman was trying to bring against them. And so with the Old Testament, we read the story of Daniel 3, and it's pretty closely related to the book of Esther about what it looks like for God's people to be threatened because they wouldn't fall down and worship the statue. Look down in verse 12 in in your phone or your Bible. There's a couple of phrases at the very end of verse 12 that are important. It says, They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. I want to show you two things really quickly from, from verse 12. The first is, Daniel uses the word God in very particular ways. In verse 12 there, it says your gods. Then look down in verse 14. At the verse, in verse 14, he says, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? And then if you look down at the end of verse 15, he says, if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now skip down and look at verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Here's something that Daniel does in his book that's very purposeful but but very distinct. Anytime that Daniel is referring to the God of the Jews, to to the one true God, Yahweh, he will use the definite article, the the T-H-E word. I don't know if you pronounce it the or the you know, tomato, tomato, however you pronounce that particular word, he always uses that particular article with reference to Yahweh, to the one true God. But if he's referencing the gods of Babylon, the false gods, he'll say, your God, my God, he'll use some other distinct word to give it that lowercase g, that he's not referring to the one true God. And so Daniel is making very clear that this is a story about who is truly God. Are they going to bow down to the Babylonian gods, or are they going to remain true to Yahweh, the one true God of of Israel? And so Daniel is setting up this contrast. Another thing that he does in verse 12 is it says, Neither serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. What Daniel is doing is he's bringing out that these Jews are being tempted to disobey the first two of the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you don't make any idols or bow down to those idols. And except that's exactly what they're being forced or, or tempted to do in this situation. The point of that in verse 12 is that Daniel wants us to understand that this is not a gray issue. This is a black and white 
Is it this God or this God? We live in a culture, we live in a world where sometimes we're forced to make decisions that frankly are a little bit gray. That's not an unspiritual thing. That's just the fact that some issues are issues of opinion. There are these gray issues. That is not what Daniel is talking about right here. Daniel is very clear. It's do you worship Yahweh or do you worship these other gods of the Babylonian? That's the, the contrast that he's, he's setting up there. Go down to verse 16. Let's see how they respond. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, you know what's going on here. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. Does that sound familiar from that song earlier? God is able. The God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. In verse 19, as a result of this, King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent... And the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. This idea here that the guards died before even able to throw these men into the furnace, it's a way of showing that there's no human earthly explanation for how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego survived. I was watching one time one of those awful History Channel documentaries where they try to delve into explaining things from the Bible. I say awful, that's, that's, that's probably a, an overstatement a little bit, but generally speaking, don't hang your faith on those particular uh, documentaries that you see on channels like that. But, but this particular documentary was explaining how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were somehow able to go behind the, the flames and the toxic material that would have been coming off of this. And so there was a very obvious human explanation for how they survived the fire. Well, that would be okay except for the part of the story about how the guards were burned up and died even trying to get them into the flames. And so what Scripture is trying to do here is just make us realize that we can't jump simply to a human explanation. God is at work doing something miraculous in this situation. And you find out, down in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. That phrase in verse 27 when it says, 
nor was a hair of their head singed. Most likely, there's a relationship there with Luke chapter 21, verse 18. In Luke 21, 18, Jesus is speaking to his followers about how they're going to face difficulty in life, how they're going to be persecuted for their faith, and he says, not a hair of your head will perish. When Jesus says that in Luke 21, there's a good chance he's referring back to this story from Daniel chapter 3, talking about God's protection. At the end of that phrase where it says that the smell of fire was not on them, I always think about my dad serving as a volunteer fire department, or a, a volunteer firefighter. In the little town we grew up in, in Oklahoma, there was You probably couldn't even call it a town, but there was a a church and a school and a volunteer fire department. And when they first got started, they didn't even have pagers, and so it worked off a phone tree. And, And I can remember my mom getting calls at home, there's a fire, and so her job was to call the next people in the phone tree. He would turn around and call the next people in the phone tree, and all these guys from the community would show up at the fire department and then get ready to go out and fight the fire. It was a big deal when they got pagers. That was a huge technological jump that we had pagers, and so you would be sitting in church, and you would hear five or six pagers get up, or go off, and you would see all these guys get up and run out the back of the church building to go across the street to the volunteer fire department. But one of the things I remember as a little kid was that smell of smoke. The idea that when he would come home from fighting a fire, that there's that smell that you just almost can't get rid of. That a lot of times you have to separate those clothes out from all the other clothes because it's just on you. The fact that these guys could have been exposed to this fire that had killed the guards who threw them into the fire, and yet they had no smell on them is a way of showing that God's salvation of his people will be complete. It will not be partial. You're not going to have some of the stench of sin left on you. You're not going to have some of the effects of this world left on you. His salvation is complete. There is nothing left on us that Christ has not taken. So let's go and talk about How do we apply this story in the 21st century? On the back of your uh, worship guide, the back of your bulletin, if you want to look at that and maybe take a couple of notes, feel free to do that, or I've just provided you, there are probably a ton of applications that we could take from these these verses, but I just, I wrote down three for us to look at. Number one, what do we learn from Daniel chapter three? We learn what it looks like to have an even if he doesn't, kind of faith. Look back in verse 16, if you still have your phone or or your Bible open. Look back in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know they're probably going to go into the fire at this point. They reply to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. These guys aren't saying, if you get us out of this, then we will serve you. They're saying, we will serve you, and it would be really great if you got us out of this situation. 
your story, I don't know all of your stories about coming to faith in Christ, but we know the stories of people who have deathbed conversions or people who are in a very, very difficult place in life, maybe in a very scary place in life, and they say something like, God, if you will get me out of this situation, I will give my life to you. And hear me say very clearly, there is nothing wrong with those stories, okay? If that's your testimony, we praise God for his grace and mercy in your life. But those stories should be the exception, not the norm. The norm is that we say, God, you are great. You have saved me from my sins. You have changed my life. And as a result of that, I'm going to serve you no matter what. How many of you know what a bandwagon fan is or jumping the bandwagon, you know, is is all about? Now, I realize, okay, that we have not started the year particularly well. But if you were excited about the Super Bowl, you are not allowed to jump the bandwagon right now. Okay, so let's make that, that very clear. Jumping the bandwagon is when you follow a team or a celebrity or a group because things are going well, and then when things don't go well, you start to jump off the bandwagon and say, I'll go try another team or another celebrity or follow somebody else. We're not, we're not doing that, okay? And we're sure not going to do that when it comes to our faith in God. What they're being tempted to do at this point is they're being tempted to jump the bandwagon because it looks like the Babylonian gods are stronger than their God. And so they're being forced to say, maybe our God isn't so great. Maybe he's 0-2 and he's not playing very well. And so we're going to jump the bandwagon and we're going to go try these Babylonian gods over here. Except that's not the way that they respond at all in this story. We've talked about this before, but there have been some statistics that have came out lately, and that was bad English, some statistics that have come out lately in, in the media that reference the number of Christians in America decreasing in number. Now, that's probably just true on its face, but more than likely what's happening is it's not the number of committed Christians in America that's decreasing. It's the number of fair-weather Christians or bandwagon Christians, or we might say cultural Christians. Someone who will be a Christian if it's popular or if it's working out well for them, but if things get hard, begin to back away from that. And so more than likely, that's what's happening. is just people jumping the bandwagon. Except in this story, we see an even if he doesn't kind of faith. Even if God does not get us out of this fiery furnace, we will still worship him. So let's think about this just for a second. Even if God does not heal my spouse, I will still worship him. Even if the job doesn't come through, I will still worship him. Even if this marriage doesn't make it, I will still worship him. What's your even if? Your statement of even if this happens. And it's not that God isn't able to rescue you. See, the reality is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they died. Not right now. But a time came in their life that, that they died. God, to show his greatness to his people and to show how he works, rescued them from this fire. But there came a day when their life ended. And God's power 
and his love and his victory were no less on the day they died than on the day he rescued them from the fire. It's not that God changed. It's just that on this day, he rescued them. He brought them through that. And the day would come when their life would end, and yet he would still be faithful to them. There's a turning point that happens in people's lives. And and usually it's one of those situations where it's no longer your parents' faith, or it's no longer your friend's faith, or it's no longer the church you grew up in. It's no longer their faith. But when that faith becomes grounded, in your stomach and and in your heart, and you say, even if life does not go the way that I plan, I will still worship him because he is good and loving and powerful and wise, and it begins to form the foundation of your life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were most likely 17 or 18 years old when this scenario played out with the fire. You think about a a late teenager getting ready to transition to college and being forced to ask, what is the foundation of my life? Am I going to go with the new gods that I run into, or do I say, no, I have seen my God be faithful, and he will be the foundation of my life. He will be who I continue to pursue. And so remembering what we're called to is to develop this but even if he doesn't, type of faith. I learned something after the early service this morning that I was not familiar with from World War II history, but in World War II history, there's an incident called the Miracle at Dunkirk. Um, And in the Miracle at Dunkirk in the summer of 1940, a huge group of British servicemen become trapped with the oncoming uh, Nazi forces. And so you have this huge group of allied forces that are stuck, essentially. They, they are trapped at Dunkirk. And one of the officers sends a message, a telegraph, back to London that says, but if not. And when it was received, because the people there knew the story of Daniel chapter 3, they were able to interpret that to know that the Allied forces were in trouble. They sent in huge numbers of reinforcement, and the people, most of all of them, were rescued from Dunkirk, and it became known as the miracle at Dunkirk because they had this foundational sort of faith that was based on Daniel chapter 3. And you say, how do you develop that kind of faith? Well, that leads to the second point on the notes. The second point is they had a he is with us confidence. Look back at verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There's a good deal of controversy and and discussion about who exactly this fourth figure is. Is is this maybe Jesus, uh, the Son of God, with them? Is it an angel from God? No matter how we interpret that fourth figure, the reality is, is that they knew God was with them. However we understand that fourth figure, the point of the story is they knew God was with them. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how the story of Daniel and the story of Joseph from the Old Testament are tied closely together. 
one of the themes that comes out of the story of Joseph from the end of the book of Genesis is the theme that God was with Joseph in Egypt. And so what is happening is that that reality that God was with Joseph in Egypt is being brought into this story with Daniel, that God will also be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with all those who are faithful to him. He'll be with them in this time of difficulty. One of the things that we know from world religions, and this applies almost completely across the board, is most religions in the world is there is a God or gods out there, and we have to work or raise ourselves to that God in some way. The story of the Bible is that God, in his grace, came to us. It's not about us being able to get to him or working our ways to him or becoming more spiritual. It's that the God of heaven came to us and came to us through Jesus Christ saying, I will go through the fire with you. Whatever you face, whatever you deal with in life, the story of Christianity is not that you grin and bear it. The story of Christianity is that he is with you. He is with you in those times. And you have something like Psalm chapter 23 Even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? For you are with us. The idea of God's presence with us gives us confidence to face those situations. And just as a a very, very minor aside, if you are scared about the the blood moon situation or, or the super moon situation coming up, let me give you my message on that. Don't be afraid. That, that's it. That's, that's, that's my message on how to deal with this, this situation. I don't know that this is going to mark the end of the world. I can almost tell you with utmost confidence it, it will not. But if it does, we don't have any reason to be afraid. There's, there's no... Uh, Martin Luther, who was one of the uh, reformers, one of the Protestant leaders... He was asked, he said, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do today? He said, I would plant a tree. I love that response (laughs) because it says, I would continue to do right in front of me. Somebody in the early service, they asked me, they said, because of everything happening on the internet and with this this media sensation, did you think about changing your sermon this morning? No, no. If the world's going to end tomorrow, I would preach the same exact sermon today. That would... God's work in our life doesn't change. We have no reason to be afraid. He is with us. We have this confidence. And so I don't mean to make light of these situations, but we don't run around like the sky is falling in. We have a confidence that that the Lord is with us. And that leads to the final point. And we'll wrap up the sermon with this. The final point is a Jesus is victorious hope. We have a he is with us confidence and a Jesus is victorious hope. Look down at verse 27. We've already talked about this. But they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. We know from the book of Matthew in the New Testament that when the angel came to Joseph, he said, you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
We have ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. We have hope because of his victory through the cross and through the resurrection. This story in Daniel chapter 3 begins to advance our understanding of the resurrection as we look at the Bible. And there's a lot of things that can be pursued with that. But as we conclude the message, if you would turn over in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews. I want, to, I want us to read a passage of scripture together to wrap things up. The book of Hebrews is right after Paul's letters in the New Testament. If it's difficult to find, uh, go to the book of Revelation and just kind of go back to the left a little bit. Hebrews chapter 2 is what we're going to look at. But I want you to see how this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 ties together with the hope that we find in Daniel chapter 3. Hebrews is famous in the New Testament for the way that it ties together a lot of threads from the Old Testament. And and this is one particular place that I think it helps us to see how Daniel 3 impacts our life. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too meaning Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then look at the verse 15. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All of us are tempted with times in our lives when we forget about God's presence, when we forget about the victory we have in Christ, and we're tempted to jump the bandwagon, to say, you know what, this probably isn't worth it, my faith isn't worth anything, and we jump the bandwagon and go another direction. And what we want to say this morning is God is able. And even if he doesn't work in the ways that you expect, he is loving and good and powerful and wise and ultimately victorious. I'm going to pray for us, and after I pray, we're going to stand, and we're going to sing that song, God is Able, as our declaration together. And if I can pray for you during that time, I would love to do that as well. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, thank you for Daniel chapter 3, a story that several people in here probably knew from Sunday school growing up, or vacation Bible school, or little kids' VeggieTale videos, or just all kinds of different places. But then we come face to face with how it impacts our lives and what it means to worship you no matter what. No matter the oppression, no matter the temptation, no matter the persecution, no matter the difficulty that we are facing in life right now at this moment, that you are able, that you are with us, and that your victory is perfect and complete through Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 